Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? This is another episode of Questlove Supreme. I'm your host, Questlove. Uh, with me is the family. Uh, we got uh, Laia. Hello. How are you? I, I'm well. Hello, sir. Doing well. Yeah. You're, you're back in L.A. right now? I am back in L.A. Yeah, yeah. Gloom and cool. doom. Yeah. Gloom and doom? Yeah, May Gray, June gloom. People don't know this about L.A. Get it Get it into it. Okay. I, that's good to hear. Fontigolo is uh, in the blue room. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. You got a new light bulb. I think per- previously you were going purple. Now yeah, I was going purple. I, I went blue. I, I went cool. You know what I'm saying? We got a legend in the building with us today. So, you know, I tried to make it cool for him. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's what it is. <laughs> Sugar Steve, what's up, bro? How you doing? Hi, everybody. How's what up? Life? What up? Everything's good. Everything's good. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I will say our guest tonight is, I mean, I feel like all of our guests are legendary, super legendary, but our guest tonight, world famous songwriting Hall of Fame member, having damn near pinned over... Uh, close, close to two two thousand joints, joints, wow. in his in his illustrious career. Um, he is the architect, in my opinion, the architect of the sound of Memphis. You know, a city that has rich musical history, and you know, as a staff member, as a writer, as a producer for uh, Al Bell's legendary Stax label, he has given us so much magic over the decades, um, along with his uh, songwriting partner. Uh, Isaac Hayes, and on his own, of course. You know, he's worked with too many legends to name. Uh, there's Sam and Dave, there's Otis Redding, Bart Hayes, Carla Thomas, uh, mm. The Emotions, Albert King, Rufus Thomas, and, uh, of course, Johnny, watch out for Jody Taylor. Um, <laughs> even even if uh, those names I mentioned are slightly before your time, I will say that, uh, you know, if you're a hip-hop head, can we say that, his composition might be the musical backdrop of the East-West L.A. beef. Mm. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. Well, no, no, no. Because the word is that, you know, p- 
Pac got That's a lot to put on it. Yeah, so Pac sort of felt that you know who shot you was about him, of which you know we have clear evidence that Biggie did that rhyme with Keith Murray for the Mary J. Blige uh, right. interlude, you know, long ago. But so. the truth didn't matter at that point. The truth didn't matter. Yeah, the truth didn't matter. I guess the, <laughs> the perception was bigger than what uh, reality was. You know, we we live in a time where facts don't matter, and so. I, I will just say that, you know, between like Biggie and, and Wu Tang and Kane and MOP and Will mm. Smith and so many mm. others have used his, his work, you know, we're we're in the presence of, of a legend and we're honored to have the one and only great David Porter on Quest Love Supreme. Welcome to the show. Yes. Sir. Yes. As How LA are- Reed said, how do you top that? <laughs> <laughs> it's really an honor. But no, you you laid the that. foundation, so I'm I'm just you know regurgitating your your life's work. So, where are you right now? Are you still in Memphis? Uh, no, I'm I'm in New York. I was a speaker at the AIMP uh, summit, which uh, I left there and came right here. That's why I have this loud jacket on. I was uh, along with your fan and your friend Dougie Fresh. He wanted <laughs> me to tell you hi. Oh, okay. Yeah, we had Doug on the show. We had him on yeah. the show. Oh yeah, yeah I my love. Yeah, you know, I was going to ask, like, do you normally dress this swanky every day? Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. no, sweatsuit guy. That's me. Oh, okay, no, well, that's one rocking right now. Loud jacket on it for these folk. But Doug is, wanted me to be sure to tell you hello. And uh, yes, it's an honor for me to be here. Thank you. With you guys, can you tell us your first musical memory? Well, uh, you mentioned one of the cornerstones of those memories, and that's Maurice. I was born on a dating street in Memphis, Tennessee. My next door neighbor was a family called the Cunninghams and they were drummers. And we sang up the street at a church called Rose Hill Baptist Church, where if you read Maurice's autobiography, he, he mentioned that in his biography, which is true. And uh, Kelly Cunningham and Leander Cunningham were, were the brothers that were older than uh, Carl Cunningham, who just so happened to be the drummer that was an airplane crash with Otis Redding. He was the original mm. drummer for the Barquets. Four doors up the street on the left-hand side of the street was Maurice White. And, and we came together, uh, eight, nine years old, singing at Rose Hill Baptist Church right on the, on that same dead-end street. And the stimulus for the impressions and the motivation for, for creativity and, and people making us thinking that we had some singing talent because they were clapping and shouting and we didn't realize it's because they were worshiping. We thought it was all about us as young kids, but the motivation to to want to have the passion for music really uh, stemmed out of that experience. So you were nine years old when you started playing in your church? Well, actually I was, before nine, we were going to church, uh, Yeah, but 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 actually singing in, in, a, in a kind of a, Quartet is not the right kind of word, but little kids singing together. Mm. Uh, Lynn, Kelly, and Maurice and I was about 89 years old. We were going to La Rose Elementary School and, and singing in church on Sunday. That was a, a real experience of, of learning how to feel good about doing that in front of people. And you were born in Memphis, Tennessee? I was born at 290 Virginia Street uh, up against a building called Coal Manufacturing company which was the last last house at the bottom of the hill when it rained water would roll down the hill and up against that that tin building and and very close to going into our home and the next door neighbor was the Cunninghams which which Carl was the drummer and, 
and right up uh, going up the hill was Maurice. Okay. And that, that was it right there. Like I know a lot of legends were born in Memphis. Aretha Franklin was born in Memphis, was she not? Yes, she was. Yes. Okay. Yes, she was. Her father preached, uh, Reverend Franklin preached my father's funeral, you know, at Great White Stone Baptist Church. Yeah. I, when, oh, I first, when I told Aretha that years later, she, it just blew her away because she had recorded I Take What I Want, one of the compositions of Isaac and I, and, and I told her that and she, it just blew her away. Yeah. But oh, yes, wow. she was born in Memphis, Tennessee, right near 4th Street. So just tell me like the general, like why is that town so musical? Well, there in, in 1947, 48, uh, there was a radio, the first black radio station in the country was WDIA in Memphis, Tennessee. And the fact that that before that, all of the music you heard was, you know, the pop flavored kind of kind of kind of vibe. And so the energy for the originality that I'm going to speak for in just a second didn't come to bear until WDIA started playing all of those amazingly emotional connecting music by black artists. And the one thing that happened that was really, really meaningful and impactful on young kids during that time was the individuality of artists to artists. You know, the, the, back then you had a four piece rhythm, bass, drums, guitar, and keys. And so in order for th that kind of magic to happen in a unique kind of way, artists that you will listen to on the radio, one thing that as a kid, one thing that really manifested itself to you was the individuality of artists. You, you listen to Chuck Berry and what he was doing with the guitar and his rhythm essence of how he was doing what he was doing, even though he had a, a rhythm accompaniment, but the focus was his guitar playing. And you listen to Little Richard and his piano playing and what he was doing, it, the individuality, in addition to his persona as a singer, was, was his personality. Fats Domino with the same piano playing, the individuality of Fats was the Fats vibe. So you were you were able, Jackie Wilson with the range and the, and the magic in his tones and things, you were looking at as a youngster, those kind of impressions that were in turn motivating you to understand that the magic happened through music was trying to find a, a, something that identified you and your uniqueness. And so starting from that kind of foundation, all of us start trying to find that magic. So when you mentioned Al Jackson, his father was a musician and a drummer, but Al started finding his own niche out of an individualistic way for himself. And by the time we got, got to Stax, with the sloped floor in the room, the Stax was an old movie theater and the floor was sloping. We'd get in there doing our records. Al would be at the bottom of the floor. We'd be doing the vocal of, at, at the top of the floor with Sam and Dave or Johnny Taylor, Abbott King or whoever. Isaac would be in the mid floor and Steve would be a little higher than that. Al heard a delay when he would play and his pocket was feeling where the true essence of the tempo was with that laid back kind of essence that was coming throughout the room. And so, but everybody would work to find the individuality because of the motivation of the music that we was hearing coming from WDIA, even with B.B. King before he blew up, you know, there was that magic that he was finding it within himself. Bobby Blue Bland and Johnny Ace and all of these people had their own persona, uh, which was also in turn motivating us with aspirations to do music to try to find that for ourselves. Actually, I'm glad I have you now because, you know, even though it's been kind of six months since the, the release of the movie, as a director, Baz Luhrmann yeah. kind of has us at arm's length a little bit with his, you know, it's when, when you make Hollywood biopics, it's either like, did these facts really happen or is this a Hollywood tale? And... 
I want to believe the Elvis movie, but I got to hear <laughs> from someone that was at least in proximity. The way they portrayed it was like, you know, he was just hanging around the way amongst the brothers and whatnot. I mean, is that a fact or was that more embellishing? Beers Learman came to Memphis and asked, asked if he could talk to me. So he came to my studio in Memphis. The reason he came to the studio in Memphis, because HBO did a special called The Searcher on Elvis Presley. And if you saw The Searcher, which, which they, they showed it for a couple of days in a row, and it was a few years ago, then you saw me talking okay. about Elvis in, in on that special. The reason that I was able to talk about it was because when I was a kid walking up from this Virginia Street, where I was born, up to Beale Street, which, which wasn't that very far, Maurice did the same thing. We would see people, because we were not able to go into clubs or anything. Like, we would just walk up the street and just see people. I was a poor kid, like I say, from a large family. My dad was died when I was two years old, and so I had a little bit of freedom, a beautiful, amazing mother. So I was able to go and just, with these aspirations to want to do music, to get those that kind of vibe. And so there was this young kid, white kid, hanging around the street. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was Elvis Presley or anything like that. Nothing a- akin to that. But I, I, I found out that that was, in fact, Elvis, a white boy that wanted to sing black. And so what I did was I really told Beers where Elvis got the vibe from. Elvis got the vibe from Roy Hamilton. And if you saw the movie, The Searcher, the reason that the name Roy Hamilton is mentioned in the movie is because I told him that's where it came from. Otis Blackwell, who, who was the writer, who didn't get all of the money and certainly didn't get all of his, his writer credit, was a writer of so much of the Elvis stuff. And if you listen to Otis, if he was alive, you see where Otis also got it from. But but Roy Hamilton, the flavor and the nuances of Elvis singing came from Roy Hamilton. Check us out some of his early catalog. I, so, I used to, yeah, I used to listen to, uh, I think Isaac covered... Uh, don't let go, right? Yes. Right. So yeah. my dad my dad used to play the, the Roy Hamilton version, and I always thought that was Elvis. The turntable was too high for me to see like what was on the label. <laughs> and so Yeah. Yeah, for the longest I thought that was an Elvis Presley song. So what what with this being straight up and real, there was an authenticity about Elvis' comment being influenced by black artists. And that that was in fact true. Elvis would count go to it was an event that WDIA would hold in Memphis called the, the Goodwill Review. Elvis would show up backstage at the Goodwill Review. There are pictures of Elvis with Rufus Thomas and BB King. Wow. So, but that's real. Now, so was he the only white gentleman to do that? Is that why I felt so special? Because he was just by himself. Well, not, 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 listen, the individuality of black talents was a template that Americans used to break talents like that. Them finding ways to replicate some of the nuances of black talents was the cornerstone right. what became whatever you want to call it, even up into this day. So no, no, he 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 was not he was not the only one. And not the first, I'm guessing either. Just the maybe the most talented no, out of the got, he just blew up, but he no, he 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 he, he was there was so much magic happening around uh, Bill Street. There's mm. a famous music mm. street mm-hmm. in Memphis. Mm-hmm. A lot of poor people, but we the people having a good time inside of what they had to deal with. And that was the place they would go to do it. And there were clubs and the like on that street. There was magic. And like I said, the individuality of people being proud of who they were would manifest itself not only in the way people would perform on stage, but even the way a guy who may have been working on a garbage truck would dress 
for the weekend and just be, be having a good time in his own world. In the, yeah. in the bias and the racism that was going on at that private time, you could not kill the spirit of a people. And that was that was what it was. And then there were some folk uh, like an Elvis would, would come and hang around that vibe and that spirit. And obviously, we eventually found out what it ended up being for him. Well, let me ask you. So, you know, having come of age in the mid 70s, early 80s, I'll say that, you know, your average soul singer is pretty much at this point, like emulating Stevie Wonder like with his soulful voice and whatnot. And so, you know, I've, I've, of course, because I wasn't born during the time when Elvis first came out, I didn't know firsthand, like, so everything I learned was, you know, sort of like later in my life. And I always knew, you know, that the theory of like, you know, if I could find a white boy that sings like a black guy, I'll make a billion dollars from, you know, Colonel Tom Parker saying that. But like, in your opinion, was Elvis's voice in your opinion, as a, a true blue Memphis in that in that area, was that the actual voice of a black guy? Like, was it if you were to put him on, was it sort of like Bobby Caldwell? <laughs> well, yeah, like I mean, well, I, 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 I know I, I agree with the Roy Hamilton thing, but is that sort of snarling thing that was gonna was that the actual voice of because if I'm thinking of that time period, I'm thinking more like Ray Charles and whatnot, but. Is it just was it just typical for black singers to have that sort of voice that Elvis has? No, 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 no. no. That, you got to give him a little bit of of him finding what the black brother couldn't give him. That's the whiteness of who he was. And so the nuances that that gave him a little bit of a torque came out of him not being able to replicate with the trueness of what all these talents were. And 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 you consider what what Otis was doing, Otis Blackwell, who wrote the songs. I wish you could have heard. I, I met this brother. And knowing that there were a lot of credits that were given to Elvis, that I knew Elvis didn't write the songs with him, but but he's written the songs with Otis Blackwell. Things that I heard those kinds of things. But you can listen to him and you can hear this guy sing, and you can say, Oh, Elvis got some of that from him. Elvis got some of that from Roy. Elvis got some of that from him. And so he was able to put those things together, but also find a niche that gave you a little bit of a of, of what he was about as well. And it 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 became a combination of those things, but it was magnified by the uniqueness of the black contribution that he he, he grew from. Fast forward, Justin. <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> right, right. You know, the interesting thing, if you think about the 70s and before that, listen, uh, Teddy was Teddy. Otis was Otis. Johnny mm-hmm. Taylor was Johnny. Albert, who couldn't read, and we would whisper the lyric, I would be on the mic when he would sing, say the line before we would sing it, but the uniqueness of Albert playing the guitar, hitting the line, mm. the uniqueness of Al- Albert was inside of his personality as Albert. And only, oh, wow. He, only he could do those kinds of things. You give Johnny Taylor the melody that Isaac and I, we wrote, I Gotta Love Somebody's Baby because somebody been loving mine. Now we wrote the song and Dave wrote a song at the teacher Johnny. But when Johnny sang the song, the individuality of Johnny took it to another another kind of ever. A blues song, Little Bluebird. We wrote that one. Listen to it. The individuality of the artist, even with the Hayes and Porter song, would take it to the persona that was there inside of their uniqueness. And then by the time we get to Sam and Dave and we're doing the church thing, which is mm-hmm. what we're doing, the individual of Sam with the combination of Dave and I would direct them like a choir. If you listen, I thank you. You're going to hear me holler at the, at the very intro of I thank you because I make the mistake and holler and we kept that tape 
But that's because I'm on the other side of the mic directing them, but I cannot give them the individuality that brings out the uniqueness of what they were. And it became an identity thing because they were focused on making it theirs. And so that's what all of those are. And so even before Stevie, the individuality that ultimately ended up being Stevie mm. grew out of some of the influences that he heard as a youngster. Because the first record I heard on Stevie Fingertips, I didn't hear Stevie Wonder like Stevie Wonder. Who's Later you? on, I heard Stevie Wonder like Stevie Wonder because he stopped affecting the uniqueness that was truly him. And he magnified it. And then everybody says, to your point, Chris, start trying to follow that template. But those yeah. who followed the template never got to the strength that Stevie had. I see. I see. Class. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, 
Their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. For you, when do you sort of credit the moment that you started your mission, like your, not your come to Jesus moment with music, but that this was something that you professionally wanted to pursue? I was, how real should I be with this? All the way real, let's go. (laughs) Super real, good. I was so, so poor. From a family of 12, with an outdoor toilet in Memphis, I told you who my neighbors were, and we all were that way. Maurice and I moved from where we were to a housing project called Lamoine Gardens, the same time which was a housing. I just felt that I had to find a way to do this thing. I thought I was a singer. (laughs) To do this thing, and I was trying to find an identity and didn't know where that was. And so here's a kid working at a grocery store, just getting ready to graduate from high school, from Booker T. Washington High School, where Maurice White and I graduated in 1961 from. And I'm working across the street from this movie theater, which was Satellite Records. And I, I would go over there because there was a little record shop there. And I had mm-hmm. no money to buy the records, but there was a lady inside of there who said they had a recording company and uh, they had a, a label. I asked her about it. So they, they said, we record country artists. So I said, well, could, could you audition me? Would you listen to me? She said, well, you can talk to my brother uh, but we just record country. So I went in, in, the, in there and I talked to Jim Stewart, who didn't want to, to listen to me or anything such as that. He had a, a guy working with him by the name of Chips Moment. If you Google the name Chips Moment, he became legendary later on. But he was the guy that was working with Jim Stewart before. There was no stacks. It was called Satellite Records. And so I got the audition there and froze in the room <laughs> on the audition. But I bought to them, I got some of my classmates to perform on it for me. I got Booker T. Jones to play baritone horn on the demo. I got Andrew Love to play tenor sax on the demo. I got William Bell to sing background along with James Austin on the demo. What? William Bell became, yeah, yes. And my demo, my demo was a song, original song, because he asked me did I have it, did I write songs? I told him, yeah, I didn't have any. He asked me, uh, well, did I have a band? I told him, yeah, I didn't have one. And so he had two artists, Nick Charles and Charles Hines, country. I convinced him to let me do an audition. I then got the guys together to do the audition with me and froze on the demo and flopped. And it didn't work for me. But Jim Stewart met Booker T. Jones, who he used to play baritone on Rufus Thomas' record. William Bell, he recorded, you don't miss your water till your well run dry. And, and the rest is history. I mean, it's, so what it showed me was that I had a long way to go. And I started trying to find out who I really was if I wanted to be this. And I, I realized that I couldn't be the artist. I tried a couple of other records. I recorded for Savoy Records of Little David. I recorded with Willie Mitchell, Kenny Kane. Mm. Uh, oh, you said Little David? Yeah. Yes, it's on Savoy Records. I didn't know that was a Savoy subsidiary. Really? No, no, no. Savoy was different. It was the, Savoy yeah. wasn't Stax Records. Okay. 
that's that's for me out hustling, trying to trying to find a path. Oh, to okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it. Okay, yeah, that's, that's that's important. But so in in trying to do that, I get with this guy who we we used to sing on talent shows at, at the Palisade on Beale Street by the name of Isaac Hayes. So Isaac and I started talking. I said, let's let's form a writing team. Now to come to Jesus moment was me figuring that if I'm going to get in the music business, I'd already fail with the audition trying to sing, but I bought this guy all this amazing talent. And so I didn't get right in. I got with a Isaac and we formed a label called Genie Records. And there's a record on a guy by the name of Homer Banks called Little Lady of Stone. And ain't that a lot of love? If you find that record, that's a record that I did with Isaac before Stax Records. Then I went and convinced Jim Stewart to give me an opportunity as a writer. I became the first staff writer for Stax Records, given a, a, a six-month trial. And the rest is history. I started building the writing staff and all of that. What year was that? I want to say it's 1963, but I could be Woo. slightly, slightly off because I was there in 1961. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, there's a record called The Life I Live on Barbara Stevens that, that I did with Marvell Thomas. That was before even Isaac and I really connected. Uh, so it, it was like I was hustling. You mentioned uh, Willie Mitchell. What was it yeah. like working with him at that time? Willie Mitchell was 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 working with 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 a company by of High Records. That High was Records, yes, working sir. with London as a distributor. And Willie was not on the inner loop of of High Records. Willie was working with a guy by the name a white guy by the name of Ray Harris. Okay. And they didn't really realize what Willie Mitchell was. And so I found a way to convince them to let me make a record there. And so uh, Willie and I wrote a song, uh, you can Google this, called Practice Makes Perfect. You'll see written by Porter Mitchell. That's Willie and I. And mm-hmm. I'm Kenny Kane is David Porter. So, okay. so but this is before they allowed Willie to be Willie. And wow. Ray Harris got out of the way and Willie got the opportunity with some kind of deal. He worked with, with Joe Coogie and Nick Pace and those guys and became the guy that Royal Studio became and, and High Records became and the rest is history with Willie Mitchell. That's how I got my coming to Jesus moment of finding that writing was my inroad to finding a path for this. So was it mostly a trial by fire in terms of, you know, even with me, like with my musical education, a lot of my knowledge of like the first year that I came to a studio was more or less like, what does this do? What does this do? And, you know, I didn't, no one told me about 16 bar structures and, you know, how to find my own sound. So, you know, a lot of my education of music production just came from like the first three years of trying to see what works and whatnot. But how do these people know to trust you if you don't, was expected for you to like, be accredited songwriters and have experience of like writing out charts and knowing arrangements and all those things, or you just, are you no. singing to the each band members? Like, this is what you do or. Yes. Yeah, all of that. But we didn't do charts. Isaac Hayes did not write music. Huh? David Porter what? did neither. No, he didn't. And so we, we, we went through the whole process of head arrangements. The, the great artist, the greatest creator of that was Otis Redding. Mm. If you were able to be in a studio with Otis Redding during a session, you would marvel at how he would come up with the bass line, the horn patterns, the guitar direction for Steve to play out on on those records. 
Isaac and I were motivated from the church. We realized that Motown had the straight full beat with these beautiful melodies on the top of that. And it was amazing how they did that. But we also realized, because we, we talked strategically about how we were going to find a path inside of this industry to do this, we realized that if we want to have an impact, we had to find an identity. We had records before we did the Sam and Dave. There's There are quite a few of those records. But we were trying to find the identity way for us to be effective. And we realized that that opportunity came from the spirituality of the church on the low end of things. And so we start focusing on the bass, drums, guitar lines, rather than the straight four kind of things. And that's why there became patterns inside of all of the songs that we were doing. But those patterns didn't come from us writing a chart for them. That came from us giving the, the musicians the actual patterns. It, it, Hold on, I'm coming. A perfect example of that. The, the drum beat on Hold On I'm Coming did not come about with us just starting to sing and they start playing. No, I went to Al and said, Al, hey, remember the record Get Out of My Life, Woman, by Lee Dawson? Mm, he said, yeah, yeah. play that beat. He played that beat. I said, check that. That's the beat we want on Hold On I'm Coming. Isaac had the horn, just a horn lick on the that, 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 that lick. It put that down two or three weeks before we even thought about Hold On I'm Coming. Hold On I'm Coming came one night late. We, were, we left a club after we were jamming, went to the studio by 2.30 at night. I went to the restroom. Isaac was trying to get me to hurry out of the restroom. I said, hold on, I'm coming, man. And I said, God, it came out of the room. 20 minutes later, we wrote, hold on, I'm coming. <laughs> the, pattern, the drum pattern, we did all that. That's the movie, movie story. That's the what a movie. <laughs> God's fun is true. It is the real deal. So I the, already see that acted out in a whole dramatic trail. The yes. magic of Stax Records happened because of the inner spirits inside of the creative juices that mm. came not from somebody doing sitting down and writing a charge from it, but somebody giving the people the essence of, of where those songs were. And the individuality was only magnified through that. Okay, then I gotta ask you this question. Okay, you guys have this like 10-minute song on presenting Isaac Hayes called I Want to Make Love to You. And it is one of the most ambitious arrangements I've ever heard. It's like part jazz, part blues, part serious soul, part comedy. But there's so many parts to this song. So if it's not notated, like how for these like extravagant arrangements that you guys are doing, because it's not just like here's the A part, here's the B part, <laughs> yeah. here's the A part, here's the B part, here's the coda. Like, you guys are writing these, like, extravagant arrangements. Like, how are they able to maintain that memory of what to do if you guys aren't notating that stuff? Well, first place, I, did, I didn't produce presenting Isaac Hayes. Uh, ah, Isaac, okay. But, 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 but let me tell you, because Isaac and I work for, for, as, as, from the core, I can tell you how the things that the core foundation of all of the records was inside of the bass patterns. Now, there was charts done. On the upper end of the charts, we Isaac used Anze Horns, we used Dale Warren, Fred. I mean, we use cats to put the orchestration on the top, but that's also coming out of Isaac's head. That's not some guy he's giving the, the, the track to and say, okay, create the parts. That's not how that happened. But because there was such an authenticity of remembering things, all of the records from Hold On I'm Coming to Soul Man, the You Don't Know, those were things that, of course, the records was, what, two minutes, 40 seconds long? Your point is, well, how are you going to do this on a long, 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 long record? Well, on a long, 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 long record, if you were inside of the Stacks room and, you know, everybody's standing up looking at Isaac and Isaac is directing and cueing on the parts, 
you, the guys will write down four bars here, eight bars here, four bars, and the cats would know if you hold up his hand, it's the next, it's the next pass, it's the next pass or whatever mm-hmm. it was going to be. So I wasn't in the room when he was doing it, but I'm sure that the same kind of processes that I did on on the victim of the joke album, what you right, you, you were, is the yeah. same thing because that's what I did. So, what are Al Bell's basic thoughts when you guys and I'm I'm going back to stacks in the '60s, but I'm just curious, like when this turns into enterprise and you guys are making serious albums, what are Al Bell's thoughts when some of these album cuts are seven minutes? <laughs> Thir- 13 minutes right. 22 minutes not radio like friendly at all <laughs> that's yes. a, well I, I know that the age of fm radio was sort of like we play longer cuts or whatnot at least you know the first five years of the 70s but i mean you guys were almost like the anti-motown because i know motown's whole thing was like has to be three minutes and 30 seconds and easily digestible and so was that by design or but that is a that's an amazing question because the truth needs to be told. Isaac was the first to do the extended creative of the song. The very first. The way that happened was Al Bell now was then in control because Stacks, the, all of the masters that Stacks had recorded, Atlantic got those because Jim Stewart had signed up for one of those funny contracts and didn't realize they'd given the catalog away. Then Al, Al got into power control of the company and ultimately ended up owning the company. And so what Al did was in order for us to get back in the mood in, in a competitive way, said, listen, we got to create product and get a, an abundance of product to get out there. He encouraged Isaac to do the album. He, he encouraged Isaac to go on. Isaac said, because we were already in the power position, Isaac said, if I'm going to do it, I got to do what I feel I want to do. Al had no idea that Isaac was going to take it there because Isaac always was influenced by the Jew, jazz cats. I mean, mm-hmm. I, he, he always, but that was not the kind of records that we were doing. So when he got the freedom to do it the way he wanted to do it, we used to go to a club called Club to Run. We would go there and just jam before we'd go back to the studio. One night we were jamming and singing some stuff at the Club to Run. But something is wrong with my baby and some of the other songs that we had written and that they were popular songs that we were singing. And Isaac went, went into a vibe with the sustained thing on the Hammond B3 organ that was there and start talking. And he would start talking. And the message was on a song by Glenn Campbell called By the Time I Get to Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And Isaac started talking with me standing up on the stage with him, not knowing what the heck he's doing, and him start, and they were getting in to listen to him, and he just started making it longer and longer, and it came, he didn't have it written out. It came to him in the natural way that these lines I'm telling you and the horn patterns and came, and he talked the whole thing out and hit by the time I get the Phoenix with the B3 loud and whatever, and the cast was just trying to follow him, which they did. And by the time he got the opportunity to record and told Al, uh, Al on the second, because presenting Isaac Hayes' album did not really work. So on right. the second, he told me to do it again. I just said, I want to really do it the way I want to do it. And that's why there are four tunes on that album. And the first motivation was that Phoenix thing that we did at the Club of Run. And that was, what, 19 minutes long or something? <laughs> <laughs> would, would tape ever run out? Would, would tape run out at all? Well, uh, that didn't know that, but uh, you know, Isaac, Isaac would we would be in the studio jamming, and and, and we end up with a lot of tracks that would end up writing songs off of later on, 
just by the extended part that we didn't use on a record. So, so cats would know that, that in, in, by the time I get the Phoenix case, that had to be a new reel of tape. Cats would know that he was going to do extended version. They just did not know it was going to be that long. So I, I, I don't know. I wasn't in the room on Phoenix, but I can okay. tell you. I know that. So can you um, explain, especially like with, uh, with the tension that's happening in the mid to late 60s, especially in the civil rights movement, how was it socially, especially with, you know, cats like, uh, you know, Donald Duck Dunn, Steve Cropper, like, because, you know, the sound of stacks, even though it's gut bucket soul, gut bucket funk, like this, this is an integrated intersectional kind of, of organization with men and women, black and white, that sort of thing. So how easy was it navigating, especially with sort of, I, I guess, culminating to King's assassination, like in Memphis, what is the social atmosphere of these white musicians and black musicians playing together? Like, what's a work dinner look like? <laughs> Inside the studio. Well, to, to, to the question, if I think I, I understand correctly, this is, this is the interesting thing about that period. Racism was still rampant during mm-hmm. that, that period. It was still there. But because Stewart was smart enough to see that the Black contribution of talents were far exceeding where Steve was and Duck was, but these were cats that were able to integrate, for lack of a better word, into the vibe of what we were doing because they were able to listen to the, where we were coming from. And it was it was showed the, the, the possibility of seriously making some, some money until they were, there was a willingness to follow the lead of the Black talent. And when I say that, when you consider there's Booker T. Jones in that, in that combination of, of talent, we call it the big six. There was Al Jackson Jr. in that combination of talent. There was Isaac Hayes in that combination of talent. There was David Porter in that combination of talents. And here is Steve and Duck. And the, the leading parts was either coming from Booker or from Isaac or from I, as re- or from Al, as it relates to where a lot of the originality come from. The ability to adapt and to be effective with it was coming out of the rhythm creators that Cropper would bring to, to many of the songs, and Duck would, was amazing at remembering and containing patterns and giving you the right kind of energy for that. Like, what about once y'all left the studio? Because, like you said, y'all were the leaders in the individualities, but y'all couldn't eat in the same places, stay in the same places. and that 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 is so, so true. And then we didn't make a norm of that. They would go to a place called the Four Way Grill with us, which was a black restaurant on the Mississippi and Walker. And when we wanted to, to really eat together, we would go to the Four Way Grill. And in the Four Way Grill, if you read the history of it, that was also the place where Dr. King would go. That's also a place where Jesse Jackson would go. It, 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 at the front of the, the, the Four Way is the door you, people would come in from the street, but they had a back entrance. At the back of the door, James Brown and a lot of folks, we would go mm. in the back door of there and we would eat some of the best soul food you ever want to have. But that was a place. When we would do, I was a vocalist for Booker T and the MGs on the road playing the college circuit. To your point, we'd get in the car. We didn't, we, this is Booker T and the MGs. Well, I would do sessions with, we work at the college circuit on the weekend. We'd get in the car and go play gigs. And we had a lot of instances where we could not get in the hotel. In a, in, a, in a real comfortable kind of way. We go and play the gig on the college date, come back and be in the studio on Monday. 
So it wasn't, oh. it wasn't the kind of thing where you'd see a lot of, let's go out and hang out together. There were black clubs and there were white clubs. And that was still going on in Memphis. By the time you went into the stacks rooms to do the work, it was a unity there, but it was also a willingness to follow the lead of the black talents who was really making the thing. And that, that's why the magic came from an Otis Redding who showed everybody what all of that meant, what I just said, because there was no one who could do it to the degree that Otis could do it. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Did you personally feel some sort of way when, like, your sound and your formula are being used by other Memphis? Like, in other words, like, if you were to, if anyone were to listen to, like, Let's Stay Together... Yes, you know the sound of the brass band in the front and the the basic gut bucket groove of that song. You know, if someone were to say to me like, "Oh, it's probably Stax Records or something like that," and you know, even though you guys are in proximity of each other in terms of mileage, like I'm certain that Willie and his organization were way different. It might be like one or two musicians that are the same. Are you guys feeling some sort of way that like the sound that you help? make the blueprint architects is sort of now being even outside of Memphis, because I'm certain that, you know, there's the cats and muscle souls are also, I'm thinking that they too are, you know, Memphis based and whatnot, like, especially with the work they were doing with Aretha. Like, did you feel some sort of way when your sound is sort of like identified with that whole region, but some of those things that you had nothing to do with, it just sounds like, 
you did? Well, the beautiful thing about it is that we had so many artists that we had to use other rooms to do this. The reason that Muscle Shoals Sound became revered as it did is because we sent so many artists there. So many, many artists there. How far and was Muscle Shoals from Memphis? Maybe, maybe a little bit more than a two-hour drive. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the album that I did that, that has the victim of a joke, the song, The Masquerade is Over. Yes, Wait, time out. <laughs> All right. Come on, come on, dude. <laughs> okay. Are well, you really asking us right now? We know <laughs> I'm afraid the masquerade is over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but 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 that that well, Clef, that's that was one of cute. those kind of things. You, you mentioned earlier about hair stuff. That's one of those kind of things. I had a mic going around the room with the headsets going and humming lines to, to cast the play. But that, but but that's also one of the dumbest mistakes I made because the second half of it, which has nothing at all to do with the original song which I was giving the head arrangement to. And that's where all the samples came from. Do you know how many millions of dollars I gave away with that? All of those, those, how many, well, that's another story. But, but, but. Uh, so no, we're going to ask about that too. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, but, 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 uh, but Muscle Shows was so many artists, Johnny Taylor, uh, the Staples Singers, Carla, the Emotions, uh, we, so many that we, we went to those women cut. What Willie was doing over at High, that's Andrew Love and Wayne Jackson, the horn section. A lot of the patterns, and I can show you some patterns that the guys already forgot that we had already did the patterns on a track over there, and they got into whatever on the L track, and there's a line that we did on it. So, man, what the heck? Yeah. So, but but we were we were so, so unified in, in the magic that was happening out of Memphis. There was no animosity or anger toward what Willie was doing, nor was that coming from Willie, what we were doing. We were just simply happy that all of the stuff was connected. And then the, there was magic with Al Green. The magic with Al Green was reminiscent of the magic that we felt when we we lost Otis Redding. So there was a joy and a happiness. And then when he, Willie come up with a record that's stupid great, like, I can't stand the rain. I mean, just great 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 music so there was there was no it, it was in a lot some of the players were the same it was that kind of spirit in memphis during that time at any point was al green ever going to go to your direction to stacks at any point or does he immediately went to high no no willie's willie, willie discovered Al. but did, did you know about him before willie discovered him no no I don't think any of us knew about it. No, that was Willie. Willie Willie heard something in him and and took him to a space Al didn't believe he was. Al was a hard singer. Willie forced him to find the identity thing that I was talking about. Willie forced Al to find that thing. That and velvet? That, that thing for Al. Really? Yeah, no, Willie yeah. mentioned it. The way he's singing on his first album is oh, very different. Train. Yeah. Backup train. Yeah. That's Willie. Listen to the vamp of love and happiness. And you'll see that's where Al really is. Willie controlled how Al found himself. And then when Al really found himself, then Al magnified the persona of what that should be. And that's why some of those vocals that he would do on those songs were just crazy. Because <laughs> he was having so much fun and discovering new nuances inside of what he was doing that was even fresher than he even imagined, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. he, just, he became unbelievable. The same thing was happening with Otis as well. Johnny Taylor as well. Can you tell me or recall um, the experience of hearing 
what happened to Otis Redding and the uh, the original Bar case? Well, let me first first say this because this is this is this is an interesting story. When Otis came to Memphis to record "Sitting on the Dock of the Bay," my office at the Stacks Building, the door to the office was on the street because by then we had bought the other location. There was a cafe next door to the, the theater, and there was some other things on the other side, and there was a grocery store on the other side. We had bought all of that and converted that into part of the space. Otis came into the room in my office and said, "Man, I want you to hear a song." And tell me what you think about it, because he, you know, he, he, he there's a mutual respect there. So he he came and he sang with an acoustic guitar, open string acoustic, and he sang "Sitting on the Dock of the Bay" to me, the whole song. And he said, "What you think?" I said, "Well, I think you ought to make the first verse, the last verse, and the last verse, the first verse, because uh, the story sets up better that way." He said, "Really thinks so? yes." He went into the studio and recorded "Sitting on the Dock of the Bay." Now, it was not complete because he had a plane to catch. And he then left Memphis, got on, got, did his flight. I was, as I mentioned, the, the vocalist for Booker T and the MGs. That weekend, we flew to Ohio and played a cottage up there, in NOI up there. So I'm, we're in, we had finished the gig. We're in the airport. I get a call from my wife at the time. I get a call saying that they said that Otis Redding was in an airplane crash. And I said, I, I couldn't believe. So, I, so I, I said, no, what are you? And I I didn't believe it. And she reinforced it in a, in a really emotional way to me. And I told the guys that I was told when I told, I told the guys that. And we were getting ready to catch a plane to come back to Memphis when we found out. So we were coming from a gig, Otis was going, they were going to another gig. And the devastation of finding out about that was when we were on another gig. Matter of fact, it's in, I think I want to say it's in Booker T's book, if you read, Booker talks about it as well. Hmm. And that's, that's, that's when that was found out. Did you, did you know James Alexander well, uh, the, the basis of the Bar case? Well, then you don't know the story about how the record came about. They had a record, a, a track that they had. And it was just a track. Isaac and I went into the room. It was a track. Jim Stewart was standing over there listening to it. Didn't know what they, what it was. Ben Cauley, they was they played the track for us. Isaac Hayes came up with the title Soul Finger. I said, let's put some kids on the record. I went outside and got 25 or 30 kids, bought them in the room, got two cases of Coke. Ask James, James Alexander when you interview him about this story. Got two cases of Coke, gave him the Coca-Cola. <laughs> I directed them like a choir. Every time I raise my hand and do this, you scream soul finger. And then when I do this, you say, you say soul finger. And, and so Isaac gave the title soul finger for the record. I put the kids on it. That's, that's the record. So James <laughs> Alexander definitely knows David Porter and Isaac Hayes. Definitely does that. The getting jigging record with na 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 na. I did on the bar case gave them. I did a head range, gave them fifty percent of the song, but I, I came up with it. Put the kids the same thing again. I got kids off the street. I directed them like a choir and had them sing na 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 and did the track on the bar case. <laughs> uh, so sing and dance, right? The sing and dance. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, real close to James. I've I've always been curious, and you know he's he's definitely. Um, 
he's definitely like one of our bucket bucket list guests that we want to get. Um, I would love to get him. Play. Just let me know. Oh please, that that's him and Jazzy Faye. Like yeah, but, yeah, James' yeah, yeah. son is Jazzy Faye. Son. He used yeah. to lay on the floor in the studio. It's really Jazzy did. Yeah. Do you know like how he was able to bounce back and start the group all over again, and just how he he felt? Because I I believe the story is that. I don't know if it was a coin flip or not. The the thing was that only a certain amount of people could fit on the plane. I believe the legend is that James Alexander was like, look, I'll I'll just catch a commercial flight. And he, he, him and Carl did that. Another not 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 Carl Cunningham, but another Carl. Carl Sims did that. Cause Carl Sims was gonna go with him. And James and Carl Sims did that. That's that's true. Okay. It was and, eight eight seat or something like that, whatever the number of seats was. But James and Carl couldn't get on it, and James took a commercial flight. That's true. Mm. James was the one that was asked to go, and because Zelma didn't want to, she wasn't emotionally able to do it. James was the one that w- went to identify Otis. I know that was such a uh, a devastating loss to the label. Like, how are you guys, especially with the transition of you know moving into the seventies and whatnot? Can you? explain just the feeling at the time like especially post king by the time the 70s comes like what are you feeling in terms of like where music is or where stacks is as an organization to really appreciate the energy that otis brought to our environment otis was a driver for another guy that was being recorded at the time otis came in as his driver Otis pleaded with Al Jackson Jr. to would someone take a listen to him sing. Mm-hmm. Al told Steve, "Give if you got a minute, man. People that already was leaving and already left. Would you take a listen to this guy? He he just wanted somebody to listen to him." Otis Redding sang "These Arms of Mine." with Steve Cropper, who is not a piano player, playing tributes on the piano. Mm-hmm. And the rest is history for Otis Redding. Then because no one understood Otis better than Otis, because Otis was a huge fan of Little Richard. If you listen to the B-side of these arms of mine, you're going to think it's Little Richard, because that's where Otis was. But the, but the these arms of mine song, Otis showed where he was. Mm-hmm. And that was a thing that resonated inside of that room. And no one could do that but Otis. And Otis was given the lead way to show where that came from. And then Otis was the one that started really magnifying the head arrangements kind of vibe of what, what ultimately became the cornerstone of everything we did there. So the loss of Otis right. created a kind of emotional kind of devastation to all of us. That is no way to explain the level of it because then we begin to feel what could have been with the magic that was coming from this man. <laughs> I mean, he would go in the studio room and just like fast as get up, would be able to come up with all these parts and these tracks and just do them and then go on the mic and make up the song on the mic. That's me singing harmony with him on Fab Fab Fab. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah but that, but that's that's. I'm, I'm, I, I didn't know when to come. He says, I said, oh, it's when you go come in. He said, you'll feel it. <laughs> and, then, and then it was like, but that's the magic of this, this guy. The thing is that Otis Redding was 27 when he died. Was it 
that typical for uh, during the time that you guys have him between the age of what 20 he came to you at 23 or 24 i don't i, I can't you could be right I, yeah I, 23 24 I, I, twins, but i can't remember like were you guys saying to yourselves back then like this guy has a way older voice than what his age allows or was it just the stress of living in that time just brought that age and that experience on your typical singer back then when you listen to the B-side of, as I mentioned, of these Zums of Mine, and you hear Otis there, and you listen to what Otis was doing, Otis was so brilliant as far as cementing the individuality that, that magnified with people. So you could talk to Otis, and Otis was like, yeah, how are you, you doing? Everything's fine. Like, then he, he said, you can't get that, you know. I mean, all of this was with a purpose aimed at locking you in to the persona that was Otis Redding. There was no Otis didn't talk like that, George. So that was a character. You better believe it was. And, but he, he also perfected it in such a way that that the uniqueness of him, because he would stumble upon other things that he would do, and he's making up things on the microphone as well. It, it's just that was a character, man. Even on Tramp, where he's like talking all country, whatever, like bro. It's real what I'm telling you. <laughs> this man was brilliant. And, 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 and the brilliance were manifested in some of the patterns that the cats were able to play, which was motivating Isaac and I to get better with our patterns. I thank you. The record on I thank you was motivated out of Otis Redding. I went there. I said, Tennessee Walker horses on the drums, Al. Just the magic of Otis Redding and seeing what he would do in the room was the catalyst for so much of what happened through all of us. And, mm. and so us trying to find our traction to get into the ballpark of that was, to your point about a little bit of the decline before people were getting to find their way, that was part of it. We had lost the magic marker for, for what we could ultimately be when mm. we lost that guy. Who do you think he was trying to emulate since that wasn't his natural voice? Otis Reddy. When I say that individuality was the cornerstone of the magic of what was happening at Stacks, I'm saying that that became the signature thought for everybody on every record. William Bell, his records in the sweetness that Booker and William wrote in the songs, Everybody Loves the One of Those Songs, that's William going into a character. That's one of my best buddies to this day. That's also inside of the character of where he know his slot was. Yo, what you're saying is people, there were alter egos before there were Sasha Fierce. That's what you're saying. Hello. Hello. You know what? I'm learning that right now because I just found an interview with Bobby Womack talking about Sly recording There's a Ride going on. You know, one of the questions I had about Sly was like, well, how come the voice of Sly is on that record where he's like clear as day on his record? And Bobby was just like, man, Sly's an actor. He was just fucking around. And right. I see now. Like, I don't know. It's just that to me, just that voice is so seasoned. Like, it just, and again, like, I heard that voice when I was 10. So I just thought that's like my grandfather's voice. So when I found out he was, you know, I'm thinking 27. I'm thinking, you know, like Chris Brown's voice or bad era Michael Jackson voice like sounds like young but he it's, he just sounds so old and seasoned I just thought that was unusual I came from a period where 
people who look like me in order to connect in a market that didn't have all the access of the internet and all those kind of things, had to find a way to make the possibilities of that more real. And the best way to do that, based on the evidence of time, was to find the individuality to create an essence of uniqueness for you. And inside of that kind of thought process was the desire to find that. And in many instances, when people would find that, they would find themselves and they would know where that pocket was. Bobby Womack, Chips Moment left Stax Records when Stax, when Satellite turned into Stax. And Chips went to a place called American Studios. And because Bobby couldn't get into Stax Records, where did he go in Memphis, Tennessee? Bobby went to American Studios. And if you go by the early music of Bobby Womack, you'll find out that Bobby Womack was in Memphis, Tennessee, recording over there. Uh, Danny Thomas and Chelsea at Chips Moment Studio. Check it out. And wow. so, <laughs> look, when, when we did gigs, and I'll say this, and I'll be when we did gigs on, on, the, on the college circuit, and we'd go and do these gigs, some of these white colleges would have two acts performing. Some of these appearances were Booker T and MGs on one end of the floor because they didn't know that Booker had a vocalist, which was me. They would hire another group to sing and perform. Who, who did they have one of those gigs? And this it was a guy that came a buddy of mine. They hired the Osley Brothers. <laughs> who was playing guitar for the Osley Brothers on, on these college dates? Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix. Who came to Memphis with me to try to get some gigs, some sessions with, with me in Stax Records? Jimmy Hendrix. Mm. And so all of this, Damn. all of this speaks to people understanding that they had to find an individuality that gave them an end to where they wanted to go. Jimmy is another essence and example of that because he was a bad mother shut your mouth playing, bro. But when he got when he got time for him to find him, he knew how to integrate those nuances that became the rock thing and go into that whole look. He knew how to do that and he did it to the bone. So you're basically saying that rap music isn't the only genre yes. in which yeah. someone's everyday voice, a la Sean Carter, mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. And Jay-Z is, you have to be a character. I I just thought that was hip-hop. Oh, the that. land of make-believe didn't start with hip-hop. <laughs> I love that. And I thought that. The nuances of what, in my opinion, uh, many of those talents got to where they got to was realizing that James Brown seemed like sound like James Brown and Teddy Pendergrass sound like Teddy Pendergrass. And somewhere in between that... Uh, Sly Stone sound like Sly, and somewhere in between that, you can go, you, you can go down the line. And the magic happened when people perfected the essences of who they were with the purity of an emotional connecting way to an audience. And that was where the magic was. And so I think that when you find all of these, these records happening on the tonic and cats trying to find a way to, to trick their boys to make themselves sound, whatever they're doing, they got that unbeknownst to them possibly of the influences that came through their grandmama, their uncle, whatever, talking about how they like, I like that James Brown. I like, why y'all doing that kind of stuff? And then they found a way to make it work for them and they make it work to the hill. And so Nas and these other kids, and they told me that, that, that you, you mentioned who shot you, which, which, which my guy Biggie did do for Biggie, me, but they yeah. told me Biggie's audition tape was a song of mine. And when a, a, a writer, I forget uh, the magazine. Blind Alley? Blind Alley. Yeah, came to Memphis to interview me, and he told me that. I said, what are you talking? He said, no, his audition was, I've never heard that. 
<laughs> and so, so by the time I, only thing I heard was who shot you. So, but, but the point I'm just saying, they were looking for, for ways to find the individuality that was uniquely them and they perfected it. So when I listened to Biggie and hear where he was coming from, and then I listened to Kendrick to say, what well, I'm saying, this is stupid stuff because they all find a way to find the magic within themselves. You mentioned Jay. They all find a way to do that. Right. Those who become affected with it, and as soon as they get the pocket of money, they move to the hills. But th- that's... <laughs> hey, what's wrong what's, with that? Ain't nothing wrong with that, bro. I'm playing. I'm playing. I'm playing. <laughs> But that's just real. Wait, wait, wait. Let Steve ask this question because I cut Please. Steve off. I'm sorry. Oh, I forgot my question. No, I'm just going to ask you a question. Oh, Steve, come on, Steve. The, uh, the story you mentioned earlier about sitting on the dock of the bay, that it was unfinished. Did you uh, oversee the finishing of that song or how did that no, get finished? No, no. No, Cropper did that. Steve, Steve did that. So what had to be recorded after his accident? What part of the song? I don't know. I wasn't in the session. Oh. You know, Otis just sang the song to me when he came to my office and then I just gave him that, that suggestion. Then he went in the studio and recorded. I, okay. I, you know, I don't know to what degree he was, it was not finished. I really don't. All right. Well, I have, I have a follow-up question then um, about, about Hendrix. Um, why didn't Stax sign Hendrix or I'm trying to imagine Jimi Hendrix as a Stax artist mm-hmm. um, or what that would be like. Uh, was there any talk well, he was about a blues that? guy? Yeah. You know, yeah. he wasn't Jimi Hendrix at the time. Right. He was trying to get on successions. Mm-hmm. There, there was no essence of 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 Jimmy being Jimmy at the time. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. But and then then Steve had a lock on the on the studio. Being honest with you, he wasn't easy to get get in some sessions. You mm. know, and he just came to to see if he could. How many studios were in total rooms? Well, there eventually became three rooms in there, A, B, and C. But it was a while before we got B. It was it was a, a while before we got that. So what's scheduling like? Oh, it's crazy. We ended up, as I mentioned before, having to, to do bookings at what's my place in Muscle Shows. Oh, Muscle. Okay, I get it now. Okay. Jackson, Mississippi, we did some bookings. You know, we, we, we ended up, because we had so many acts to do. Was Nashville ever an option? Like, was did Nashville have any potential of having flavor? Yeah, I was uh, going to ask about that. <laughs> or, nah. nah. No. <laughs> so, do you feel the? It's funny. I'm like, I know you know about the. Got to ask about the Black Music Museum because there's only one Black Music Museum in the country, and it's in, in Nashville. But yeah. it's 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 supposed to feel like a, a situation where to make folks come. Do you feel like that, or do you feel like that it should be? It should in be Memphis? in Memphis. It should have been Memphis, but but honestly, I Henry Hicks, uh, the guy who came to Memphis before was Bill. And we met in, on all that stuff, and I, I, I supported him in the effort because I, I, it was difficult for me to believe that it actually happened in Nashville. If you know Nashville, it was yeah. difficult for me to believe that. But he pulled it off. Mm-hmm. And he got, uh, he honored Patty LaBelle, uh, Teddy Riley, Kirk Franklin, and myself as, as a program that we did there several years ago as he was bringing notoriety and visibility to it. He would bring yeah. several artists. Yeah. To talk about Nashville and what, and that's and that was part of the surprise for me to to see that he was a brother that was 
really believing he was going to pull that together, and he did. Oh, yeah, him and quite a few people. Shout out to Deanna Williams, too, and Big John Platt. It's a nice community of folks that are involved in yeah, making that place special. And where it's placed, like, right in downtown in the face yeah, of, like, the Opry. It's like, you, we here. Yeah, right, in the face of the Opry. That, that, it, 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 yeah, so I give, I, give, I give those guys credit for pulling off something that, one, I, I found it difficult to believe that it would ever be, but also the, the level of, of it being that, that it is. I mean, it's just beautiful. All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I want to ask you, David, about you. Uh, you talk about characters and, uh, you know, the singers and everybody want to be individual. Rufus Thomas, man. What was yeah. what was he like? Uh, I thought I, I loved him. I mean, I watched Stacks was all I saw him on. But um, yeah, what was he like? Just as a ain't no clean. Dude, right. the fuck y'all ready for? Y'all ready for? <laughs> if you told Rufus Thomas that he wasn't an artist, he'd cuss you out. Mm. Rufus knew that he could go into a persona that really magnified marketability for himself. If you try to get him the same thing. He was not what you, you you think in terms of that. Mm-hmm. But when he was singing one of his original compositions, he could sing, sing, because no one could do it better than he could. And he could sell it in such a way that that it, it was magic. He was he was an extremely confident man. He was up in age when he started recording. Yeah. But, he was, but he was extremely confident. 
And he also felt that he wanted to be able to compete with Sam and Dave or Otis or whoever was on the stage. So he was he found a way to get outfits, even though he wasn't getting paid the kind of money that others were getting paid on the gigs. But you can tell that because every time he hit the stage, he'd be sharp as sharp could be. <laughs> and when he go into his thing, he could do it to the hilt. And so, but that was because he just he just knew where his niche was and he perfected, as we talked about earlier, the individuality that was powerful for him. Carla was his daughter, correct? Carla was his daughter. How was it when she came along? How did that work? Well, Carla came along at a time when when Jim Stewart recorded Rufus and Carla on a record called Cause I Love You, which mm-hmm. they said it was a hit, but it really was a marginal kind of record. But Jim saw something in Carla and asked her if she had any original songs, and she had a song called G Wiz. And Carla played a little piano, and Carla recorded G Wiz. It really became the door opener for Stax and the relationship with Atlantic Records that mm-hmm. initiated the, the, the really power of the deal for us. And oh, wow. so that, that was what that was. And then Isaac and I had the biggest record on Carla because we wrote a song called B-A-B-Y and we produced that on Carla and that was her biggest record. But uh, yeah, no, she she was, she was did some 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 stuff. And the record, with, as Quest mentioned, with Tramp, was she, Otis brought out another kind of personality out of her. Which is very effective. We talked about Soul Man, but there's a whole like barrage of classic songs. I'm just going to name some. Can you recall the stories of how, or tell me what the songwriting process is uh, for some of these songs, like uh, when something's wrong with my baby? Yeah, I, I was, I was, I was a manist boy and got a girl pregnant in high school, and my mama said. You got to marry. And I married, uh, 19 years old, I married her. And so I'm living with a kid and fantasizing as I'm trying to get in the music business in an effective way about love and what is would be the power of love because the young lady didn't love me and I didn't love her, but but we had a kid. And so I would dream of, about things. And, and, and so just, uh, I would have a pad up under the bed, which I, I still do that. Right. And sometimes I'd wake up with a thought and an idea and I would write it down. When something is wrong with my baby was one of those ideas that I, I woke up in a dream, wrote, wrote the, the title down, got up, wrote the whole song out, called Isaac. We couldn't get in the studio. As I mentioned, we didn't have a lot of rooms at this time. Couldn't get in the studio. We went over to Sidney Kirk's house. One of Isaac's friends got his piano wrote when something is wrong with my baby in about 25, 30 minutes because I had the melody already in the head and the rest is history with that song. But that was like, when I mentioned the title to Isaac, he said, man, I love that. And we wrote it. And <laughs> Soul Man came about just as equally because Isaac heard something out of Detroit and said, man, we need to write a song called Soul Man. And then, then here comes Soul Man. We, we talked mm-hmm. We, it, we wanted it to be a motivational song for, for our community. So I talked about getting an education. I was educated. At Woodstock, I, I, I was brought up on the science. We talked about Alma beginning, the whole manifestation of motivating people, the double meaning of soul man in the Woodstock line in there. That was before the festival Woodstock. And when Belusi and Agro sang, people thought that we had Woodstock as a part <laughs> of that song. Woodstock was a county school in Memphis. But but all of those things came about with us trying to think of ways to, to make ideas that people can relate to, but also motivational for people in, in, inside of the subliminal messages in, in our writings. And, 
And that's what we were doing. When you and when you and Isaac worked together, how did y'all work? Like, did you were you on piano? Was he on piano? Were you more lyrics? I, how did Isaac, it go? Isaac was on piano. Okay. I, I started out as a lousy trumpet player that stopped trying to play trumpet in high school and wanted to be a singing star. <laughs> Maurice was the drummer in high school, and Booker was below us in high school. And so I started thinking I was this great, great singer and put down instruments. And so by the time Isaac and I got together, I understood melodically how to do exactly what we needed to do, lyrically how to do that. And Isaac, we started out, Isaac started out playing triplets on the piano before he started just stretching himself to do all he could do. And all of a sudden he started discovering things that he would hear inside of his head, which is where the head arranger came. Mm -hmm. And I started finding things I would hear inside of my head. And then when we sit down to write a song or, or come up with an idea, if we hadn't put some piece of something down on another tape, to, to use it as a reference for something, possibility, we would then sit down and create the songs right from scratch, right at that point. We'd schedule a writing, we'd go and do a gig at a club or, or something like that and come to the studio and just start writing. And we would do that from artist to artist, song to song, individuality, be it a blues song on Johnny Taylor, uh, a blues song on Albert King, uh, a, a lover song on the Soul Children, a pretty song on the emotions, a flat down song on Sam. We 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 focused on doing it the way we felt it inside of the room, but it was generally Isaac and I sitting at the piano, me coming up with the melodies and the lyric of the of the song, singing the song, and we coming up with a musical direction that we would go inside of that. The head arranging part of that comes when we would go into the room. We'd talk about the concept of it if we wanted to. A hold on I'm coming was one of those examples where, where he had, had had a horn pattern down weeks before. And we talked about coming up with this idea after I came out of the restroom. And then we talked about an idea about Superman, a rescue <laughs> kind of thing, and a motivation <laughs> for people. And that was where the thought was. And, and we, once we said that, 20 minutes later, we had the song, Don't You Ever Feel Sad, Lean On Me When Times Are Bad, Today Comes You're Down, A River of Trouble and About to Drown, Hold On, I'm Coming. And we talked about the unity and the bond between people with that. But when also romance. When when you were um, recalling the st story of something's wrong with my baby for half a second, I was like, oh, God, this isn't a love song. He's talking about his newborn kid being sick. And I, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I was like, wait, where's he about to go with this story? Like, oh, that's what no, he means, literally a baby. Um, no, no, I was trying to think about what it would be like to have a real woman that I could really feel all of that for. I feel you. I believe in 91, 92, back when the idea of a box set was a novel idea, these 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 CD sets, like a history of a label started happening for the record industry because literally if you buy the Stax box set from 1991, you can hear the entire history of the Wu-Tang Clan. I want to know, have you ever met the RZA and what were your initial thoughts uh, in the mid 90s when suddenly the thing about RZA and his sampling method is it was even jarring I'm, I, I don't know if I can speak for Laia, Steve or, or, or Fonte but his level of sampling was really jarring like like I'm very familiar with the sweet inspirations like Why Mary and all that stuff yeah oh, and wow. so just, <laughs> wow. the, just the very unorthodox way that he sampled that uh, Why Mary is uh, criminology yeah, right. I knew it was always different with RZA. I knew it was never. You can't. It ain't easy. It was never easy. That's what. And he like. wasn't. He wasn't afraid to use voices either. Like he would a lot. Generally, when you would chop, 
right. samples, you would try to get out of the vocal. You know what I'm saying? He would almost intentionally like incorporate the vocal. Use, yeah, it was very. So when you're hearing like, or I guess you know, the, you have to get permission. I don't know what the process is like. If your publisher just says, "Hey, I give permission," or they got to go to the songwriter. Sometimes we got to have a conversation with the songwriter. Sometimes it's just like, "Yeah, you could clear it." But when when your work starts getting a lot of traction in the early to mid '90s with Biggie, with uh, even MOP, with uh, Annie Up, Soul Sister, Brown Sugar, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Like, what are you feeling? Is, is it, Are you feeling like, cha-ching, I'm back? Or is it like, wait, I didn't intend my songs to sound like this. Like, what are they doing? The respect for the creative process was something that I marvel at. I know Isaac marvel at. And the fact that I just simply felt good, they found an interesting way to interpret something that I was part of the creation of. When Rizza and I met, Rizza, we met, well, I've been even introduced him on on some shows and stuff. And he's come to my studio and everything. Just the level of respect that those guys had for the catalog was just amazing to me, but also find the interesting ways they found to interpret the song, like Cream. I mean, like, I mean, come on. <laughs> I, you know, it, Wait, let me interrupt you because I got a question. With uh, As Long As I Got You, yeah. Maybe maybe like four, five years ago. Actually, I think during the emotions episode, I played it. The emotions have a version of "As Long as I Got You," which is even funkier. It sounds like a demo. Why wasn't that version ever released? Because it probably sounded like the demo that you're talking about. Uh, you know, I, I I really I really don't even remember the emotions version. I'm here. <laughs> Oh, and, my and, God. And, 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 do you know how embarrassing that is for me to say that? Because I'm, yeah. I'm, nah, I'm, you got too many records, You made over 2,000 songs. Like, <laughs> you're allowed okay. to... We'll forgive you for forgetting one. Yeah, it's okay. Remember everything. But, you're safe here. But, again, you, you've done over 2,000 songs, so you can forget a few. Yeah. But but the version that we did with the Charmels, mm-hmm. Isaac was... was <laughs> uh, I don't want to bust him out, but he was, he was a little romantically... Fascinated with one of the girls with that because we weren't even they were not looked upon as an act that we're going let's go into and we're gonna record this group called the Shamil. Mm-hmm. We knew them, Mary and and and, and Al- Mildred and those guys. We knew them, but when Isaac came, he said, "Man, we ought to record record them." I said, "What?" He said, "Well, so we did." <laughs> and one of the banner things that we did, the the one banner thing that we did that I, I, I just marvel at, was as long as I got you. And that was also one of those things that we naturally felt the power of in a, when we just wrote the song. And then Barbara, who is the lead singer of it, her texture on it mm. was amazing. Isaac is singing background on some of the parts in the record. Mm. Wow. That's not all the girls singing. <laughs> so so, so it's, it's, it was one of those things that I was shocked at how it ended up being sampled so much, even the the Nicole Bus sample of it. I mean, that's Barbara singing that part of it on the record. Mm-hmm. That's the actual record on 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 you on Nicole. Okay, that section of it. You know, we gotta uh, mention you've also worked with uh, the legendary uh, Sissy Houston and the Sweet mm-hmm. Inspirations. Not not Sissy, 
but but the sweetest racist because Sissy wasn't. So with she him. left the group at the time. Yeah, she left the group at the time. Yeah, if, if, if it was three of them at the time. Okay. Still, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sissy wasn't with them, and and wishes and dishes and and you're wrong when you don't get it at home and those songs. No, no, Sissy's not on that. So were were the emotions the only group that weren't necessarily quote unquote homegrown? Was the main protocol of Stax Records to just have like Memphis homegrown talent or like how did, do you know how the emotions came to the label and what was it like working with them? Herbert Staples bought the emotions to us. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. And he bought them to Isaac and I, and they were very, very young, 16 years old, very, very young. Sheila was younger than 16. Uh, well, I think Wonder was the oldest one, I believe. Right. Uh, but, but Purvis bought them to Isaac and I take a listen to and their father was Joe was uh, like a little guitar player he wanted to be a part of the group he was their father and so we listened to them and we said that Joe wanted to be a part of the group because he was impressed with you know Pop Staples you know with, with the Staples and so uh, we said if, if we would do them we'd have to do just the girls and so we, we did the girl but, but, but Purvis was the one that brought them to us wow Okay, so you you mentioned it earlier. I was saving it for now, but you gotta tell me, like, what is the story behind "I'm Afraid the Masquerade Is Over"? Because every time <laughs> I a have a breakup, song. <laughs> yo, it's every time I have a breakup, like, just that is the one of the saddest songs ever. And now, and that's another example of like. There are crazy arrangements in that song, and I'm now that you're telling me that you guys are going on filling and all that stuff, and entering. I'm walking around the room. Tell what was the genesis <laughs> of that song? Actually, the, behind the second album, which had "Hang On Sloopy" on it. I don't know if you ever heard that, but I know. Over, it. Yeah, yeah, but but I didn't quite hit the mark with "Hang On Sloopy," but I like the concept that I had would hang on stupid. So when I came up with the concept of creating acting scenes inside of the next project, I knew I was going to create something different. So I wanted to have acting scenes. So Who is she? Who's great. the woman? Who's the woman? That was a, one of my secretary, but also my, my <laughs> wife, my, my second wife was also in that. That's that when the car scene, I come up running, uh, that's my second wife. The wow. girl I'm talking to uh, about the girl yeah. that I'm fascinated with, the girl that Wait I'm talking to, that was actually my wife. Wait, time out. There's two women on that song? Yeah, well, my, if you go to the very beginning, not not on that song, if you go to the very beginning of the album. Yes. Where, I know that I'm one, yes. Yeah, and, and, and I go, uh, you open the door, and I go into this party, and I'm talking. Well, the, the, oh, the girl... <laughs> that's talking to me about the other girl, uh, that was my wife. Wow. I wrote out the story as I would go, and I, I then selected the songs that would fit the, the concept of where I was going to take the story to. Well, if you notice, the last song on it was Airplane, Ticket, Bus Ride, Can I Borrow Your Car? I wrote that at the last minute because I'd gone through the whole storyline and didn't have the, the closeout song. But the masquerade is over came about where I wanted to create something that gave the, the essences of all the things that had happened prior to that period in the album where this acting scenes. So if you notice the breakdown comes and, and I, I start rapping. Well, I, there was 
I didn't have it written out. I knew the concept. I didn't have the rap written out on that. So I knew the concept and I talked the concept after I did the head arrangements for the parts. So you're singing it as the band sort of reading your face at the same time? No, no. I did the track first. In my mind, I'm looking uh, okay. at, I'm going through the emotionalism okay. that I want to feel inside of the various transitions. That's why the piano part, that's Ronnie playing the piano. I'm humming the piano part for Ronnie to play. Ding, 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 ding. The signature has been wow. sampled all the time. That's right. one of those things where a piano player naturally want to play more. Right. Hum, just play that and mm. stop. Just that. And when I clue you, stop on that. That's what that was. <laughs> but so so after that was done, now I get ready to sing the song. Now I do the rap and I'm feeling where the parts are before I do the horns. And I, I'm feeling all of that. And I'm making, I promise you, I'm making it up. But I'm from the extended part, not the actual gutter song. I'm making it up the whole time because I know where the storyline is going to ultimately end up and where it's going to lead to the next song. But not that I ever counted bars, but in your mind, you're like, okay, we're going to do 32 bars of a break, and I'll figure out something to say in these 32 bars. No. And then it's over. Like, you... No, no. It wasn't... It wasn't I, went, I, did, I, I know about counting bars. We do that, but not, not on this song. I so said, you got I'm walking around the room, talking in the microphone, directing cats in the microphone, I'm going around the room while the track is, while I got the, the, the bed foundation of the track. Right, right. Oh, my mama, I'm telling you, this is how this was done. I'm walking around the room, humming the parts. <laughs> I don't know how many bars I'm going to make this. I just want to make the emotional connectivity be authentic enough for me to feel something that I need to feel when it's time to make the transition. That's why you hear some, some calm flubs and things inside of the track. Listen, I know you know. You know. <laughs> that's why you hear some of that. But the this of it was why I kept a lot of that. The wrongness of it. Listeners of QLS, right now I'm doing the Jim Carrey Dumb and Dumber realization <laughs> gif. <laughs> I can't believe this. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I was to ask David, are, were you a, a fan by chance of David Axelrod? Did you listen to any of his stuff? No, I never did. Really? Okay. I just both of y'all always like. Now you kind got of, me gonna listen to David Axelrod. <laughs> oh man, yeah. I, both of you guys, y'all kind of have like this really dramatic. dark, yeah, dramatic, like big, uh, like it's it's big and like beautiful, but it's also kind of dark and kind of macabre as well. And um, it's really classy, it's elegant, but it's really like dark and it can be like oh you listen to that listen to it in the dark you might be freaked out a little bit wow, wow. <laughs> but wow. um but, but really beautiful yeah. stuff man i i just i i just wondered if y'all were fans of each other well well you know what i, I would tell you this man i i am i feel that i've been so blessed because what come has come through me is the grace of the man upstairs because I have a nonprofit program where I teach songwriting, record producing, all of that, mm. called the Consortium MMT. I, it's 10 years old. A lot of what you hear coming out of Memphis are kids that have gone through my program in songwriting and all this. I got 130 some videos with everybody Stevie, Maurice, uh, uh, Philip Bailey, Jimmy Jam, uh, Bobby Womack, Eddie LeBird. I mean, Lettucey. I mean, on video, talking about their, their concepts, the creative process. So all of this, I had to come up with a 
a set way to understand how I do what I do for the success of those things that come out of that. Because if I was relying totally on how I felt, people don't care about how you feel. They care about how you make them feel. So I had to find a way to make the magic of that be resonating to others. And I had to also know in order to replicate it again, find some way to understand it. And part of what Isaac and I would talk about, and sometimes he would think I was crazy because I was so far into that. And, but it was a gift. And, and Maurice White and I came from Virginia Street. Maurice, I'm, if you read his book, you see that he's talking about me being one of the first person he ran the name Earth, Wind, and Fire down to. Why? I flew to LA. I was a hot, hot producer. Maurice was with Ramsey playing at the Hong Kong Bar at the Central Plaza Hotel. I flew to LA because he wanted to tell me something. I, 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 he did the gig. The next day, we walking up Sunset. He's going to tell you a concept I got. Maurice created Earth, Wind, and Fire off of a concept in the direction that he had from the get-go and knew exactly what he was going to go in in the creative process because he knew he wanted to have an identity that created a uniqueness that was totally him. That is the essence of what comes out of Memphis in such unique ways that no one can, can understand it, including me, except it's a God-given gift. Was Man. was Maurice's uh, metaphysical direction, was it jarring to you at the time? Because, you know, what Maurice was trying to convey with Earth, Wind & Fire was like, the which is kind of the exact opposite of, even though he was using uh, gospel overtones in the, in the Southern Church, but he's really using metaphysics and things outside of westernized Christianity. Was that a little weird for you at the time? Like, oh, what'd, you, what'd you get into, Maurice? Like, like, how did you perceive this this kind of spirituality uh, that Maurice was was conveying with, with the band? We walking up the street, and when he said, tell me what you think about this. Earth, wind, and fire. <laughs> Consider the time period that we're talking about. Ohio players, mm. parliament. Mm. You go, go down. There. Here comes a guy who says, "Earth, Earth. wind, yeah. and fire." And this is the concept, David. And then I'm going to fuse jazz. For, he he ran all of that down to me. He's going to fuse that inside of it. What I thought was. He's going to make something work because we always talked about how I stumbled from the spirituality of what I was doing to make it work. And I just believe he was going to make it work. I just didn't know how he was going to accomplish it in the climate that we were living in because mm -hmm. it was it was going to be so innovative. It, it had to be. But when I heard the sound of what he did, because he had a group before Earth, Wind and Fire, when I heard the sound of what he did with, with, with the group, I, <laughs> it was... <laughs> It was over, <laughs> and we stayed like this. I was I would fly to L.A. when he when Maurice had the Parkinson's just to get him in the car and ride in the street because he was through touring. We were that close, and we we talked up until he left it. So his thought about what he was going to do, because he had that thought about what those processes was going to be and what the musician was going to be before he put it together. The only thing he told me differently while we were on Sunset, he said, "I'm going to bring Verdine out here to California." He told me that, but other than that, he was going to put all of those ingredients together, and he did it. Wow. But yeah, I, I just, 
because we we worked off of off, off concepts and a direction and, and identity and all of those things. We lived off of that. I just didn't know he would pull it off like he did. <laughs> I believed in him. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. There's one important question I forgot to ask. As, as a kid that grew up in a 3,000 album household, and especially a kid that was afraid of clowns. <laughs> Dog. Mm-hmm. Who was the who was the artistic visionary behind <laughs> the the album cover for Victim of the Joke in the clown he, outfit? Nicholson, when he says you can't handle the truth. Listen, that's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> I didn't know how smart I was. I just thought that because I had some Tennessee Walker horses out in Shelby Farms, I just thought, look, I want to do this cover and I want to have a clown outfit on and I want to be, I want to sit on a drum because I want to make this an opera, call it Victim of, of the Joke. I want it to be, and I want to make it like, who's the clown? And so, it, it, but I, this is before I wrote out the script, uh, I had that. So that was one of those things where, as just it, it came from another kind of space. Just like when something is wrong came from another kind of space. Hold on coming came from another kind of space. The toilet was there, but it was somewhere else. <laughs> but it's just it's from another kind of space. Mm. When was the ending of Stacks as we knew it? The ending of Stacks happened with Isaac still there, 
Me still in charge of five labels, head of A&R. Steve Cropper was gone. Duck Dunn was gone. Al Jackson Jr. was there. And, and so it was, it was a situation where we didn't know what was going on with the business part of the company, but we knew that Al Bell had became such a revered person, certainly after the white stacks that we did, which was amazing within itself, until it was almost, I had the feeling that, that the business white community where the biggest were, when they found out that, because we had a line of credit with, with a particular bank that when they found out that this, this black man was, was what he was, was doing what he was doing, that it was almost, they, they called the line and came at us in such a way that they they got Al Bell indicted, wow. 18 kind of indictment, and, and tried to destroy him, foreclose on the company. And the last thing we knew was Isaac couldn't get any money, his money, which he, he it was millions of dollars there. And the company actually folded because of foreclosure. Isaac then left Stacks when it was foreclosed and then signed with the other label. But he didn't he didn't sign with another label before Stacks closed. Hmm. Wow. And so, but it was it was an attack on destroying a powerful company that was creating a great amount of jobs and a tremendous amount of notoriety for Memphis, Tennessee. And you put that with what Willie Mitchell was doing, we were a power base in a city that was seeped. In a, in a kind of bigotry that was not in its own interest because the, the credibility that we was bringing to the city was was tremendous in itself. David, were you around when Al Bell formed Belmark, uh, his his indie label that they put out, they ended up putting out uh, Whoop, There It Is by uh, yeah, Tag yeah, Team? Yeah, he, Al yeah. Al moved to California when he did that, you know. He, he had an yeah. office building on, on Hollywood there. You know, yeah. I, I, I was definitely around. When Al, when Stax was over and, and everybody thought Al was over Al ended up, you know, creating Bellmark, as, as, as you said. Wait a minute. He, he was still a, he, he a brilliant mind. Yeah, and I think he did. He and did Prince. Prince, most beautiful girl in the world, yeah. Oh, crap. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot. Oh. And Motown. And Motown. Say what? Al Bell worked with Barry Gordy at Motown for a them minute. Them bells, them bells. I'm trying to think <laughs> it. But check that out, Joe. You know, I'm, I'm gonna say I've listened to you guys, and and I just marvel at how much information. What in the hell <laughs> was Fantasy Records at all associated with Al Bell? Because there was a period in the in the early aughts, like in 2000 and whatnot, in which ah, damn. See, I'm messing up right now. One of the executives that used to work at Geffen, who signed me, went to Fantasy. And was like, yes, we have all the fantasy masters and all the stacks masters. Like, can I can I ask a question? Was that was was that Ernie Singleton? I know Ernie Singleton, but no, it was not him. No. Okay, okay. Because Ernie worked for fantasy at that period. Okay, but okay, so I guess they connected in the early aughts. I, well, you know how the fantasy deal happened, right? No, I don't know. Okay, stacks closed was totally closed in '76. Here comes the people came to me and asked me, would I create a, a seven and a half tape of what the, was in the Stacks library? And would I do that? Because they didn't know what it was. The bank had foreclosures and they were just trying to figure out how to get rid of stuff and they didn't know what they had. And so what happened was 
they had to pay me a hundred thousand dollars to put seven and a half takes together for about 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And fantasy records came to me after that and asked me what I had up the, the label for them. What they wanted was to release the catalog of the music. And they wanted me to move to Berkeley, California. I said, I would not move to Berkeley, California. If you answer me doing it, I would have to do it in Memphis. And I also would have to have the right to sign some of the artists to, to the label and you release records on them. So we don't, we don't really want to do, I said, well, I'm not interested. Well, they, they would not have known what to do with the catalog. Hmm. So they made the deal with me. Ernie Singleton, who later became the president of MCA, and that's why we're close to this, this day, was working for Fantasy Records. Another guy by the name of Bob Urshie was working there. I released a record on the emotions. They had a record called Shouting Out Love. I released a record, an album on Isaac called Hotbed. Mm -hmm. I released a, a record on the barcades called Holy Ghost. I released a record on the Soul Cheering called Can't Give Up a Good Thing. I had another act by the name of Shown Up. And if you go 78, should be, and you Google 78 Billboard magazine, you'll see there were four or five records on the national charts of, of, of with Stax Fantasy on it. And then when I told the guy, we have an opportunity to be successful, he says, no, I don't want, I said, we can be big. I said, I don't want to be big. And then I, I, I left the deal because I realized what time that was. Mm. Wow. I won't go deeper than that. Anyway, I wasn't interested in, in that. So that's what happened. So after that, whoever signed with Fantasy, I left in 78 after those records were released. If those records that I mentioned... Holy Ghost, the hit on the barcades. That was after Stacks had closed. I was going to ask, what was the, because they were on Mercury at the time. Like, was that in their, that was just in the vaults or something? That was, I got that out of the vault. I got the album out of Isaac out of the vault. I got the album out of the emotions out of the vault. Ah. I, I, I recorded an album wow. on Sally Brown. Ah, see, but because the, the thing is, the, the barcades era I want to know about is, again, the, Posts, you know, the 70s bar case, but maybe you know the answer. With the exception of Holy Ghost, why is every song they ever release like derivative of someone else's hit? Like, did they not <laughs> think that we wouldn't put two and two together that Shine was, you know, uh, 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 Earth, Wind & Fire is on your face or... You know, shake your rump to the front might be shining star or like were they just the type of seventies band that would just get the the forty five of the moment, study that forty five and figure out okay what's our formula for that? Because literally, Holy Ghost mm -hmm. is probably the last. Like even even on stacks, like a, a song like um uh ah it's on the Cold Blooded record. It's like one of my favorite Barcase joint. Which is basically kind of derivative of "When the World's at Peace" uh, by the OJ's. It's um, wow. No, li literally, Jimmy Jam and I like pretty much kept a, a, a record of every song that the Barcase has ever created. Oh, there's wow. a song called uh, "Fighting Fire with Fire" on the the Stax era Barcase, which you know is also a popular sample for hip hop. But there's almost one element in every. I mean, even on those earlier records, like they're sliding and family stones dance to the music. And it's like, don't stop dance to the music. Don't stop. 
Like, were they not afraid that one day they might get caught in sort of like litigation with being? Well, there? you have to understand the guy who was ended up taking them over in total, who who didn't have the control of Stacks Records and them being kept in a particular direction that records could be sold on, was a guy by the name of work with us by the name of Alan Jones. Okay. Alan Jones became the producer, the only producer and the manager of the bar case. And he came up with the direction that they were going to go in. Matter of fact, I'm going to be sure to get James so you can interview ah, James. Yeah, please do us that salad. It, it, <laughs> please do done. us that salad. Please, please, please. It, it, it's done. But but so Alan was the one who was giving them this this particular direction. I, and I would rather, I won't butcher it up. I'll, I'm going to get James and he'll he'll... He would tell you. Ask him about Alan Jones and, I would, and Larry Dodson, who was versatile in his vocal could could emulate those beard beard Ohio players or whoever. Larry Dodson is probably one of the most underrated soul cats still yes. in, in fine form with it with his but yeah, the legendary Alan Jones who, you know, uh, I forgot to ask about Cold Feet with uh Albert King and I'll play the blues for you and all that stuff. Like, yes. Legendary, legendary. Man. This this is such an honor to just to, to talk to you and to finally get some in-depth stories from you because we never seen any feature length article on you or or anything. And you're you're just a genius and, and a gentleman and we thank you for being on our show. Yeah, straight up, man. Yeah. Shout out to DJ Khalil too, real yes, quick for having yes. us put this together. Shout Again, out to him. Thank you. Uh we appreciate you doing this. Unpaid Bill, bruh. You you missed a, a yeah a, seriously you you missed a masterpiece of <laughs> yeah, an episode I, I gotta let you know yo on behalf of uh, Sugar Steve and Fontigolo and Laia and Unpaid Bill and the great David Porter thank you so much this is another classic episode of Quest Love Supreme and we will see you guys on the next go round thank you. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life. Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, 
It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.